3: Hello, welcome back to In The Pink with me, Natalie Pinkham. Now, we know many of you are Formula One fans. We also know that this is a very long, dark, cold winter, but we're here to help. We're here to help you with your Formula One withdrawal symptoms, and we've done that by pulling together the F1 in the pink podcast Best Bits that will no doubt take you through to Australia and beyond when the 2020 season starts again. So we've cast our mind back through all the podcasts that we've done and right back to the very beginning in fact. So it feels like the best place to start for the Best Bits is with our very first podcast, Mr. Daniel Ricardo. Here he is, DR and his Best Bits. Happiness. What is your definition of it? How do you think we can strive towards it? Because I have to say, the general consensus on you is you are the happiest man in the paddock. You seem to have this ability when the visor goes down to be a ruthless racer. And I think that's where the respect comes from, that you don't fool around in the car, but as soon as you're out of it. I have never... had a bad interview with you and i talked to all the other reporters and presenters in in the pit lane and even if you've had a crap weekend you put a smile on and you certainly don't project any negativity onto whoever you're talking to you are one of life's radiators rather than drains
4: do you have some tissues (laughs) beautiful (laughs) But Emotional. it's true, though. It is no, true. It I, I is true. It.
3: You know, and it's it's important to surround yourself by radiators in life. I yeah. remember talking to a guy that I work with um, at our charity who said, The most important thing is surround yourself by r- life's radiators, not drains, and then you will be productive.
4: Yes. Yeah. You don't want people droming you out and calling them <laughs> sappuccinos. There you go. <laughs> Sap the life and energy out of you. So, uh, yeah, it's. Look, I think happiness is the key to so many things and for me i've noticed happiness has been the key to success you know like uh, you know in a in a brief example i know that my, from a racing point of view if i'm happy if i'm having a good weekend and i've just got kind of a, a spring in my step and i'm putting the helmet on with you know with a smile i'm normally having a, a great race or a great session or you know like so i think happy, happiness is a, is a form of kind of freedom as well and Um, You know, all all I would kind of say is that I kind of get a bit upset when people get kind of just comfortable because I just think there's a lot more to life than being comfortable. Um, People kind of settle for maybe a certain job or a certain lifestyle and it's fine, but I think it could be better, you know, and I think, um, you know, do something that makes you happy. Don't just do a job because you're... A lot of people are like, oh, but I'll I'll work hard now and then I'll, you know, when in 20 years' time I'll be able to buy the front door of my house that I always wanted. And um, I think you can have both, I really do. And um, there's been many examples over time of of people who have done great things, but just find what makes you happy. Be surrounded by good people, happy people. And um, yeah, it's not that hard, it really isn't. So yeah, if you're not happy with your current situation... Do something about it.
3: Okay, next up on In The Pink Best Bits from Formula One is another young racer who's come through indescribable horror to develop an incredible racing career and actually, surprisingly, a really fabulous broadcasting one. I say surprisingly because who knew that he would be so very good on camera. It's just another string to his bow. I am, of course, talking about Billy Munger. And I spoke to him for the first time on this podcast a year after his accident. And obviously much has happened since then. But I think this gives a a really interesting insight into what he's been through and where he's going. So here he is, Billy Munger, and his best bits of the In The Pink podcast. Let's talk about the accident because um, we are... It's not even a year yet, is it?
5: No, not a year, (sighs) mate. I think it's two more weeks into a year gone and, so quick
3: yeah really hard. i mean i remember meeting you at uh, mike Tyndall's golf day and you just had the accident and your spirits were remarkable but how were you feeling inside i mean d- just um just cast your mind back before the accident and then enduring and just describe it to us just tell us and anyone who out there who doesn't know what actually happened
5: and uh, yeah so obviously it was yeah like you say nearly a year ago now and um it was just a, it was the second round of the the F4 British Championship, which we we were doing quite well in at the at the time. It was sort of I think we had two or three podiums in the first four or five races, so it was kind of we were right up the sharp end, um, and the aim was always to fight for the title. Um, and then obviously had um had the accident um, in in that uh, sixth race of the year, I think it was at Donington. Um, just a stationary car just spun off, and my view was kind of blocked by. By two other cars that I was racing with, and as they pulled out of the way last minute, it was kind of this car was just suddenly all I could see. So it was just it was one of those sort of accidents where it's no one's fault, but it's just one of those things that can happen sometimes. Mm. But it was yeah, obviously it was a tough time at at um, at that point for everyone involved, like my family and friends and stuff.
3: Yeah. So what do you actually remember of it? or have you been able to sort of block a lot of the pain out
5: um i was i wasn't even in pain at the time i was i think i was awake for the first 40 minutes after my accident and then they put me into an induced coma but in terms of being in pain obviously the medics, medics were were really good at getting to me quite quick um and at the time like i said i didn't i felt fine um so i told them to to go look at the other driver cuz cause, <laughs> cause I, I felt fine but i could hear him in in pain so i thought uh, yeah, I'd send them over there, and it wasn't until sort of five minutes afterwards where sort of the adrenaline kind of goes away, and you kind of just sat there, and um, then I started to like to to feel a little bit more, um, yeah, a bit more in pain from the accident, and I realised that my injuries were were worse than what I thought when I was just mm. sat in the car waiting for when the medics to kind of finish dealing with the other driver.
3: So, what did you think at the time on the scene? How bad did you think it was?
5: I know it was quite bad, but just purely off people's faces. I mean, it's it was a weird feeling being sat in the car, not being able to to get out because of of how bad the crash was. But but just looking around at sort of the doctors' faces and everything, um, you could see not panic spreading in, but they they knew how serious it was at quite early on. Mm. Um, so I guess that is it was a bit of a it was kind of a helpless feeling at, at that point because you you can't you can't do anything. You've just got to rely on what everyone else. It's gonna do for you, um, but yeah, luckily they do. They do a good job, and I'm still here.
3: Absolutely. Now, in that forty minutes that you just talked of, your sister was with you, wasn't she? Um, tell us what you remember of the conversation that you had.
5: With yeah, Bonnie. so yeah, she was still um, still with me by the side of the car. You see, they um, when the doctors went out on track, they asked if any of the family wanted to come out, and at that point, my mum was sort of she was a bit fragile, so dad was looking after her, and um, Bonnie said that she'd go um yeah and then she was kind of yeah um perched by the my side by the side of my car for like you say the first 40 minutes that that i could remember um before they they put me to sleep so like yeah she was kind of there the whole time um i can't really remember what she was saying to me i think she was just more been been there for support kind of um but yeah no it was good to have someone a familiar face by your side when something like that's happening
3: 'Cause you're close in age, aren't you? What, like fourteen, fifteen months apart? She's yeah. younger.
5: Yeah, fourteen months she's younger than me.
3: So, you know, you're you're almost twins in a way. Um my kids are actually the same age gap. And already they kind of squabble and love each other to a ridiculous extent. It's it's either one or the other. Is it the same with Bonnie?
5: Yeah, it's exactly the same. I mean, yeah, when we were younger we always used to argue with each other, but now we've got a bit older and stuff, it's um it's yeah a bit of both really we're either arguing with each other or yeah, we're really close
3: so in a way i bet that that must have helped a massive amount having her there when you needed her most i mean it must have been tough for her have you talked about it afterwards
5: uh no it's not something that we've really talked about um yeah she Bonnie's, has got uh, she's a fiery redhead my, my little sister so she can look after herself <laughs> she's normally one look trying to look after me so um yeah it's not really been something that um i guess that we've had to talk about um but yeah, and no, was just—it was good in that moment to kind of to have her by my side, even though yeah we weren't arguing at the time. Luckily enough.
3: <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then, then they put you into this induced coma that then lasted for three days. Um, what do you remember of waking up and and the realisation that actually you had lost both legs?
5: Um, yeah, it was obviously a, a bit of a surreal moment. Like I said, uh, the only thing that helped me, I think, in that situation was the fact that I knew it was going to be fairly serious beforehand, before they put me to sleep. I think it would have been tougher for me to to think everything was going to be okay and then wake up and then tell me such devastating news. But, um, you know, it definitely helped for them to kind of ease me into it, I guess you could say. Um, And then having family and friends around when I kind of realised the injuries, um, that was obviously helpful as well. So, no, it was kind of... Although it's such a shocking thing to find out. Um, yeah, there was a few a few things that happened in the build-up to it that I think, for me, helped me to to move on with it a bit quicker.
3: And how did you move on? Like, I mean, again, as I, I say, I, I saw you just weeks later and I couldn't believe that you were up and about and in, in, interacting with people and, and not feeling sorry for yourself in any way. But what was going on inside?
5: Uh, it's, it's difficult to say, really. Obviously, I, I didn't really have a chance to... Um, to sit in hospital in the dark and kind of get myself down about it, but just because I had so many bubbly kind of positive people around me, like my family were there um some all of my friends from school and from racing, um all the members of the team, they were always coming to the hospital. I don't think I had a day in hospital where I didn't have more people than I was meant to have <laughs> in the, in the in my room with me um which was obviously really helpful because it it just feels normal when you 've got. Mm. People around you that you you you, you know is if I was sat in hospital and I didn't have anyone around me that I really knew, then it, it might I might have felt a bit different. But no, it definitely helps out a lot.
3: And the motorsport community really did rally, didn't it? I mean, I remember this just outpouring of support for you, firstly on social media and then in actual terms, people fundraising, the crowdfunding was just immense. Just tell us about that and and, the, and that kind of boost that it gave you.
5: Yeah, it was crazy. I mean, obviously, when I had my accident, they, like I say, they put me in an induced coma and I can't remember anything from that sunday evening when it happened to i think i woke up um in the middle of wednesday so it's sort of three days after the, the accident that i was kind of although i had been awake with all the drugs i was in that I had in my system i wasn't really in the room at the time even though i was awake so um yeah that was sort of the first sort of thing i could remember and obviously at that point um the just forgiven page had already gone up and was alive so it was kind of I woke up and pe- they just p- people were showing me. Look at all this support you're getting, and it was kind of, it was there from a, the, the earliest point I remember. The support was there, so it was, um, yeah, a bit surreal, really. But um, yeah, like I said, I I didn't even know anything was <laughs> was going on. I was yeah, um, yeah, daydreaming, I guess you could say. And then yeah, I woke up and to all this this support, and it was a bit bit overwhelming, but it was yeah, a pretty cool feeling to have um, from from early days anyway.
3: How do you think your mum and dad have coped?
5: Um, I think at the time, they, they were putting on strong faces when I was in hospital. hospital. Um, yeah, the doctors were were telling them behind closed doors. My mum was telling me that they said that you've got to be strong because obviously, however their attitude was towards it, rubs off on, on how I'm going to feel about it. Um, so now they definitely, they did an awesome job early on of being, being strong and being able to cope with what had happened. But I think, um yeah it was obviously a tough time for him they didn't i think it's, it probably affected affected my dad early on more than it affected my mum just because he was the one who got me into racing so i think at some stage he probably felt a bit guilty for for what, what had happened to me um but now he kind of i i was quite a, quite early on i quite i just told him that it was something that or that he couldn't force me to do it although he wanted me to do it from a young age it was something that i wanted to, to do myself otherwise I wouldn't have done it. So I think that kind of helped him get over things. And then obviously my mum, with everything going on, um, trying to be the strong one and, and hold everyone together. Um, it was tough on her as well. And I think she's taken a bit longer to to get come to terms with it just because early on she, she probably blocked it out more than the rest of us did. Um, but no, I think we're getting there. And like I say, we're quite, quite strong as a unit. Um, so I think that's how everyone's helping each other out.
3: And do you think it has brought you closer together?
5: Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, no, I would... Yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, obviously, there's been times where you have... It gets someone down and there's an argument and it's kind of... it. It is quite a testing time for everyone, but I think, in general, we are closer together than we were before.
3: So do you talk about it a lot as a family?
5: Uh, not really, not unless it's brought up. I mean, it's kind of... Some of us... I don't mind talking about it as much as my mum does, just because people have asked me questions about it quite regularly since it's mm. happened, so it's kind of something that I've just been uh, made aware of and talked about a fair bit. Well, my mum kind of, like I say, blocks it out a bit more, so when it does come up, she probably is more affected by it than I am. Mm.
3: That's really interesting, because I, I, I read something about PTSD, and that if you have a big trauma, that you just need to keep talking until it no longer feels scary to talk about. The more you bury it, then the minute something does come up, then it acts as a catalyst to, like, open the floodgates and you start crying and you get very emotional again. And so I guess maybe talking about it has been your therapy in some way.
5: Yeah, I probably think so. I mean, like, I was sort of, every, like I say, every, every day I had a people in the hospital, and even if we weren't talking about that, we were talking about racing-related things. So it was kind of, I think the whole having people around me that were talking about things to do with racing and obviously what happened to me quite early on I think that really helped me to kind of just come to terms with it and like you say I wasn't I wasn't after a few days I wasn't really scared of what had happened anymore obviously it, it lasts longer than a few days it's not that simple but but the the majority of what had happened and the overwhelming feeling I had is kind of was kind of gone quite soon
3: another best bit another Aussie it's Mark Webber and he is an Australian that we've all taken to our hearts that we kind of claim as our own, really, don't we? Um, He is lovely company and I really enjoyed talking to him. So it was lovely listening back to his podcast and picking out our favorite moments. Here he is. It always feels as if England has taken you to our hearts in the same way that you have to yours. Mm. Is that how it feels to you?
6: Totally, absolutely. I think, um, you know, I moved here in 96 and i did all my junior racing here um i originally i moved to well i was in hainaud in essex for six months about eight (laughs) months which was from from australia that's in a box room where i could hardly get myself straight in but it was just like talk about a and i was going to a gym down the road there not a clue what i was doing talk about just like wandering around here going i am just so no one here in this huge you know I mean, population, which it is, is, the UK. I mean, London is like, my God, I'm a country kid from Australia.
3: You were like Crocodile Dundee, basically, weren't you? I was.
6: I was. I was bloody Crocodile Dundee. I wasn't carrying a knife. I still don't (laughs) now. But, um, yeah, amazing how I did move around a little bit in the UK. And I just... It's funny because my dad loved English comedy. So Open All Hours and the Two Ronnie, all Mm. that stuff. So I think that's sort of he injected some of that into me just the respect of how um what he said man i bloody love the poms mate i love the poms they're so bloody funny rah, rah, so
3: <laughs> i mean there's one thing liking the humor and the culture there's another thing living in a box room in Haynock parks like wondering who am i where am i i mean you really were a fish out of water weren't you and and just tell us how that process happened i mean how did you end up there
6: um yeah, well I was I was racing in Australia, um, in the sort of ninety four, ninety five, um, and what was I then, so seventeen, eighteen. And then a bit of a scholarship I suppose to come to the UK. It was to be the best racing driver in the world, you've got to come to Europe or England. At that at that at that point in your career, at that age group. It's like tennis. If you wanna be, you know, in the tennis academies, whether it's clay in Spain or whether it's in, in Florida or where the weather's good for the tennis, youngsters need to be exposed to that type of scene and, and the scene in Europe and the UK that's the hotbed of talent back then so i needed to uh immerse myself in that environment so um i'd met Anne, my now wife um you know when i was about 17 um and she was working in australia at the time and she said that um you've got to give the uk a go and actually i'll go back as well and Let's give it a go. So, yeah, we are staying at uh, Anne's mum's house, actually, the first, because we didn't have a house, obviously, so we stayed.
3: And um, Let's just kind of sh- cast your mind back a bit more to that childhood that you're talking about. And um, what are the sort of standout memories for you from mm. it? Was it a happy time? Was it full mm. of laughter? As you mm. say, your dad was just giggling nonstop to English humour, but yeah, you, you've always been an outdoorsy kind of person. Yeah. Is, is that what it was all about?
6: I think... Um, I really reflect so um, I mean so many positives on, on my childhood. I think because I grew up in uh a rural area, so sport community sport was massive. So my mum was huge on having a go and very little excuses. So mum would take me to swimming club and I was like, Mum, I don't wanna swim all strokes, well you are swimming all strokes. Mum, the water's freezing. I know it's freezing up, but you're gonna get in there and you're gonna do it. I'd have my little speedos on, you know, it wasn't all it was just freezing and I'm just in this Wednesday night swimming club in Queen being like this is like if people know about where this place is and just you know, it's just but it was amazing how the families got together, all my buddies, we ride BMX bikes we do, and I only look back now and sort of think just how simple but yet how straightforward and I went home to a brilliantly, like, mum was a bit of a disciplinarian, but, and dad was a bit loose with me in a good way, so he gave me a bit of the elastic band to stretch that relationship with mum. But in terms of my wild streak, which he'd certainly put fuel on to give me the chances to learn, and I'd already injured myself. I mean, motorbikes, I was, you know, on the dirt bikes on the farm or stuff, and, and he'd, he'd love seeing that because he was jovial at heart himself. It
3: sounds like you did have a lot of uh, strong influence and advice growing up, but is there any advice you'd give to your younger self now, looking back?
6: Uh, yeah, I think, um, yeah, what would you say? I think, um, you know, con- continuing, you know, when you believe that you're working hard, which I believed um, I. I believe I really did work hard. I would like to have worked a bit more on the mental side of the mm. sport. I think physically I was definitely in one of the best shapes I could be in a while. I didn't leave anything on the table there in terms of my pre- um, my preparation on that. Probably seek out a bit more um, just to handle, just a bit of distraction control and just a bit of handling that that last, because, I mean, pressure and you know delivering and, and and your breaking points is all generally around you know just all those distractions and and what are those things that there's always something that will break someone you know like what is that final thing that's going to start to break you down mm. um and is it with your own performance is it with you know i mean our sport as we know so you know, a lot of listeners you know will know but it, it's such a it's such a technical sport there's so many things which we have to contribute towards our performance on an engineering side that at 500 people at the factory and we're trying to so there's so many things that you learn along the way that you're like wow if i had a bloody known that early earlier or you've got columns of energy to say i actually probably overcooked that column in terms of the energy i put into it but if mm. i bloody just shift, shifted a couple of percent over to that one for myself um in terms of how i how i strip that down um and probably um even just things like probably just a bit more rest as well. Just mm. more rest, more sleep, you know, plan better. I always wanted to leave on you know, after races. I want to get the first flight out of there and get out of there. Well, Mark, actually, you know, I was busting to get back to back to the, your own bed, but it's like sometimes like, mate, you just chill, you know, let's go. So I, I think I, I would have liked to have somehow brought a bit less stress into my mm. profession somehow.
3: So just, do you think you could have enjoyed it a bit more?
6: Yes. I think... Um, that could have been, yeah, something which I should have... It was quite interesting, like my third last race after Korea, 13 drivers, um, we all got on a plane together. We flew in a private jet from Korea to Narita and we started to get... We had a few drinks on the plane and then we went out in Tokyo on the Sunday night. I after, remember
3: you doing after, this. After I Korea, remember this. After Korea. I secretly wanted to be there, obviously.
6: <laughs> yeah, you would have done well there, Pinky. Yeah. But obviously on that Sunday night...
3: You had a massive session.
6: ...was massive. <laughs> Absolutely huge. We had 13 drivers. Monday goes by and then Tuesday I had some other friends arrive and we all were all talking about how amazing Sunday night was. I said, yeah, well, it sounds amazing, but you know, if you're not there, right. I said, I'll tell you what, we'll go again Tuesday night. So we went back to the Tuesday night. <laughs> to
3: the same place. Same place. Amazing.
6: Massive. Massive night again. I qualified on pole on Saturday yeah I didn't qualified on pole so to answer your question like obviously I was not going to be drinking like that you know and I rarely I rarely drank when I was racing so mm. you know to your point what could I have done different? so could I just release the pressure valve a sniff not drinking at all in terms like, no, I don't need to do that but in terms mm. of just how intense I was and how individual and how sort of driven I was and probably how selfish but if I just tried to enjoy it a bit and, and not let that you know the profession of the all-encompassing sort of you know the, the whole global effect of it sort of pull me down a mm. bit um i think that is definitely a component i could have um just but i saw that as showing other people especially my employee like if they found out i mean which they would i mean they knew it was my last two or three to race yeah. so mark you know, it was a bit of a thank you for all the drivers he's on his way anyway but um i just i was just very old school on that right
3: next up on the formula one best bits it's a young lady who surprised many of you lots of you wrote and got in touch on social media to say how pleasantly surprised you were by Tamara Eccleston I think many of us have preconceived ideas about her being a billionaire's daughter born with a silver spoon but actually she spoke candidly and very Entertainingly about being Bernie's daughter and what life has been like for them all. And she was great company. So here she is, Tamara Eccleston, her best bits. So how soon were you aware um, of how smart your dad is in terms of the way he approaches business and what he was doing specifically with Formula One? Because really, uh, it's difficult to imagine the sport would ever have got to the stage it has now without your dad. I mean, it simply wouldn't have happened. It was a minority sport. It is now a global one, and he's taken it to corners of the earth that you never would expect Formula One to be adopted and loved in the way that it is. I mean, I'm thinking of places like Azerbaijan. I mean, who would ever have thought F1 would have gone there? But how aware were you of all of this process?
7: So as a child, I think that you just think that everyone's parents are the same as your parents and you kind of don't really think that you're different in any way or that your dad's different. I did know that he was really good at maths and adding up because he was always helping me with my homework. And whenever I'd be like, how much is... So, you know, 500,000 divided by 36, whatever. And he would come up with the answers so quickly. And I was okay. like, oh, my God, he's like a math genius. I, I thought you were going to ask me the answer then. But thank God you no, didn't. No, no, no. Okay. <laughs> okay, so my dad was always really, like, really quick with numbers. So I was like, oh, my dad's, like, really, really smart. But I never thought of it in terms of business until I was a lot older. Okay. And then, obviously, um, the older I got, I became more aware of what, what he did and that he had created... You know, when I went to F1, I just thought, like, this is amazing. My dad has created this. And I just always felt super proud every Mm. time I, like, walked into the paddock. And I was like, this is amazing to have... You look at the pictures of what the sport was like when he was much younger and then how it's changed and grown and developed. And I just thought it was, like, really awesome that he made... Yeah, he made F1 what it is today, but also he did it not for the money. He did it truly because he loved it, and that's what he believed in and he was passionate about. Because at a certain point, he could have retired and gone to Florida and played golf, but that was just never my dad.
3: I mean, that's the thing. I I always feel with him that it's almost a game, that every kind of interaction he has with somebody... And I don't mean that in a frivolous sense. I mean it that he wants to outsmart and he wants to outmaneuver. Um, Again, not necessarily solely competitive, but because it's interesting and it keeps him motivated and stimulated and everything else. So it's not something he could ever really walk away from. I mean, even now, it feels very strange not having him in the paddock.
7: I know, it is. It's, It's really strange for me. But the thing is that I think that being the way he is, like you say, always being one step ahead and always thinking ahead and everything is kind of like a game. I think it's kept him so young. I mean, mm. he's just turned 88 and it's literally not like talking to an 88-year-old. Right. He's so fit. He's so sharp. He's just, yeah, I think it, I think that doing something that he cares about and that he's loved, and that he's so passionate about has kept him really, really young. Um, There's so many anecdotes that fly around about
3: him, and I'm sure some of them are urban myths, but I love a few. One of them was that, and it's a really small example of what we've been talking about, that um, Pirelli wanted to do um, cowboy hats on the... um, podium instead of baseball caps. Okay. And and it's a really quirky little marketing idea. But Bernie, you know, other people would have gone, Yeah, yeah, fine do it. Yes. He goes, Yeah, you can do that, but it will cost XYZ to do it. <laughs>
7: yeah.
3: Um and why not put a price on it? Because then when Lewis then won the race, he was on the front of every single paper around the world wearing a Pirelli cowboy hat. So Bernie knew the, the gain that Pirelli would get from this, because it was a very smart move, but he wasn't about to just let it give slip it through. He wasn't going to give it away, exactly. And that is what he's based the whole empire on, isn't it?
7: I think that him coming from such humble beginnings mm. and having to work from such an early age, and he tells me about the fact that he used to sell like cakes on the school playground, and I was like, well, did you ever eat the cakes? And he was like, no, why would I want to eat my profit? And I'm like, oh, I would have eaten the cake. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that because he's had to fight and struggle and just work so hard he knows like the value of absolutely everything Mm. and rightly so why should he give it away he's built this this empire so when someone says should we do this this way for him to put a price on that i Mm. guess is like his natural train of thought because Mm. that's how he is where he is Mm. whereas some people wouldn't necessarily think there's a value attached to changing a baseball cap to a cowboy hat Mm. but my dad just thinks outside the box and does see things for what they really are Mm. So would you describe him as a frugal person? Or do you yeah. think he's... A, yeah, okay. <laughs> he totally doesn't agree with how I live my life. Really? Yeah, no, he's very down to earth and very humble. And he doesn't take pleasure in shopping, for instance. Mm-hmm. Things like that don't make him happy. Um, so what does make him happy? Doing deals? Doing deals, saving pennies, like um, buying something that's on sale, getting a great deal on something. Really? That makes him truly happy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And
3: so, and so do you get your kind of more extravagant side from your mum?
7: I don't know who I get it from. Listen, I've married someone that's actually quite like my dad in that sense. So I've reined things in, in the sense that Jay's like, okay, shop around, get a quote. Don't just like pay the first person that tells you it's this much. So actually like both the men in my life are actually quite similar in that way. And that's quite good for me because I'm like, I guess... Yeah, it's good to have someone that looks out for you. So Jay is like, so many people want to rip you off. Mm. They know that you like have money, so actually don't be silly. Let's take our time, let's shop around, etc. And it's really sweet that Jay takes care of me in that sense. Mm. And it's kind of funny because I've ended up marrying someone that's like my dad in that way because my dad would never just pay full asking price. He's always asking for discounts and haggling. I remember I wanted a bomber jacket when I was 11. I was desperate for this bomber jacket. And he took me into the store and they said it was like, I don't know, 80 pounds or something. And my dad was like, I'll give you 40. Like we were in like (laughs) like, Moroccan market haggling. I was so ashamed. Anyway, needless to say, my dad got the jacket at the price he wanted to pay for it. And that was a lesson well learned.
3: I tell you what, they say that everyone can be bartered down on everything. Apparently so. But like you, I would just cringe. Cringe. I don't know why. I'd, I'd almost want to
7: pay them more as an apology. Why is that? There's something in us. I guess everyone's different in their personality, but my dad has worked so hard for every single penny. And I think that his, yeah, I think he just appreciates it because Mm. I've never not had anything. Mm. And obviously I'm appreciative of money and I know that I'm super lucky and very fortunate and privileged, but not in the sense that I sold cakes and pens on a playground Mm. in school. And I think that does actually play a huge role. Mm.
3: In The Pink is sponsored by Bose, who've been perfecting the art of sound so that you can listen in unrivaled comfort. The new Bose noise cancelling 700s take it to a whole other level. So you'll always hear exactly what you want, no matter where you are. Also be heard like never before with an unrivaled 4 microphone system, which isolates your voice whilst cancelling the noise around you. Pretty cool, huh? Always stay connected with Bose's first of its kind augmented reality function that will change the way you think about travel, exercise and learning and never be caught out because they have an excellent 20 hours of battery life. They come in black and silver so you can work them around your style, your little fashionistas and you can treat your ears with the Bose noise cancelling 700s. It's a sound experience like no other. Now, Back to the interview. Right, now time for the biggest brain in Formula One. It's me! No, Eddie, joking. Adrian Newey. And what a pleasure he was to talk to you on In The Pink. He's got so many stories from his time in Formula One. And he has, of course, designed, created some of the best cars we have ever seen in our great sport so as you can imagine i loved catching up with him i couldn't help but notice something in your downstairs loo that was your school report (laughs) which made for great reading that described you as uh with the potential to do well when sensible but can be extremely silly and this must stop immediately that really tickled me explain yourself please (laughs)
8: <laughs> yes, no, I'm afraid I was. I was always I was always in trouble at school. I just school and me didn't really go together. I think most of the lessons I found pretty boring, and kind of to be perfectly honest, French in particular was I treated as a as a um, art class for sketching racing cars. That's what I ever did. I don't think I, I hardly learned a word of French and got unclassified in my. O levels, so that didn't go too well um, but i don't know i, I, I was always i guess i, was, I did, wasn't deliberately mischievous but always seemed to end up in trouble
3: so what a case of not being challenged in the right direction do you think
8: I just found it kind of quite restrictive when I got to college and then university that was completely different. so I think that extra bit of freedom but um, kind of I went through the private school system. Um, in terms of prep school and then public school up until the age of 16, and uh, the public school in particular, which was boarding, I just didn't enjoy. I was I was never that good at sport, um, and it was if you kind of wanted to be popular, you needed to be good at sport. So that kind of put me on a bit of a back foot. Maybe I was considered slightly awkward or geeky. I'm not sure, um, but just never really enjoyed it and was. Actually then asked not to return after O-levels, having done a few things, uh, which suited me fine because I then went to the local technical college and got, got into motorbikes and girls and all the things that you couldn't <laughs> do when you're at a boys' public school. And...
3: Um, I'm sorry, you can't just skirt around this for doing a few things. What did you do specifically to get
8: expelled? Uh, it was what kind was of... science lab or anything? No, no not that one, but um, there are a few things. One was... Um, I was into karting at the time, go karting, and so and my the uh, workshop manager was actually very good. Um, at, there was a sort of workshop for I don't know woodworking and metalworking and so forth at the school, so I managed to persuade him to let me bring my cart back and tinker with it during evenings, um, and got it going, and then kind of ran it around, um outside the workshop, which is also by the, the school chapel. And of course, it made a hell of a racket. And um, kind of, then there was one of the other, one of the friends who had helped me with it said, Could he have a go? He had a go and had a small accident in it, by which time the headmaster had turned up to see what all the commotion in the racket was about. So I was in a bit of trouble for that one, not asking if I could run it, et cetera. Um, Caught in pubs, the usual stuff. And then the one, I guess, that was kind of the, the straw that broke the camel's back was. Um, the Sixth Formers had this thing where they could have a organize an end of term pop concert, and uh, that particular year they managed to get a band called Greenslade which was kind of like tangerine dream it was one of those sort of seventies atmospheric bands anyway um it was also in the days of Oxford loons and bags and so forth, so we Got managed to get hold of some half bottles of vodka and gin and so, and um taped them to our shins underneath the trousers and smuggled them in, and then mixed them with coke once you we were in. I'm not sure why we didn't just mix it with the coke before we <laughs> went in. It'd been a lot easier anyway. And um and uh, kind of yours truly got fairly well ratted, let's say. Um, the band itself had this uh, a sort of sound mixing booth in the middle of the auditorium, so when the guy. Who was doing the mixing went off, I guess, to go to the loo. I jumped the controls, slid all the mu- sliders to max. Um, at which point, again, the house, the headmaster, turned up. By which time, I think I'd probably more or less passed out. Anyway, I was caught at the controls of the flipping sliders, um, taken off up to the school sanatorium, and given a stomach pump, which I think was a bit unnecessary. It was <laughs> <laughs> very unpleasant, that's for sure. And then. Uh, following day apparently they found that the all the sort of leading on the stained glass windows of the of the this piers building which is i think built in the 15th century or something and survived Cromwell and everything they're very proud of their original stained glass window but anyway some of the the leading was cracked and um they decided that was my fault because of the (laughs) the noise (laughs) so i was my parents were summoned to take me away which is actually also quite funny because my mother was, um, she was very much a leftover from the swinging sixties. She sort of always liked dressing in white with a mini skirt. And, uh, so she turned up and gave with a potted plant because the headmaster, um, she knew like potted plants. So she gave him this bright white or beautiful white lily and said, um, here you are, Mr. Gammon, wasn't it? Um, here's a, here's a small present for you. Now, um, about what adrian He's a good little boy is isn't he and uh and the headmaster said no i'm afraid um he's actually been a very bad boy she said oh well so what happens now then well i'm afraid you'll have to take him away and she said oh well if that's your attitude adrian come on let's go and i'll have my possed plant black. <laughs> <laughs> that was it
3: and i know you're not supposed to have favorites but have you had one over the years of all the drivers you've worked with have you had one that you've particularly clicked with
8: I think click is exactly the right word so you know particularly when I was race engineering there were some drivers sorry go back one I think if you get it right a race engineer driver relationship can become very close you kind of almost understand each other and you trust each other (coughs) and the, the driver gives the feedback that the race engineer needs and then the the, the driver trusts the race engineer to get on with it. And I had that probably with Bobby Rahel in particular in the States, Mario Andretti as well. Uh, actually, it's those two that probably stand out most of all. Mm. Um, Damon, and, Damon Hill and Mika Hakkinen as well. Uh, now I'm kind of not quite as involved in the race engineering as I used to be. But in terms of kind of the drivers I... So do work with still and, and
0: kind of. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices
8: emphasise with it, I suppose, have friendships with, um, then probably it'd be Mark and Daniel that, that that I know best. Sebastian, I think he's... Sebastian gets a hard time in the English press and it's unfair because he's actually a really good person. Mm.
3: Um, I think he's quite guarded, he's quite private, which is yeah, quite, which is great yes. for him, but yeah. sometimes people don't see the real Sebastian Vettel and yeah. actually it's quite endearing yeah. when you get to know him. No, he's uh, a great person. Yeah. He's a
8: great chap. And he's, you know, if the drivers now that have left the team but still come up and chat, then Sebastian is the one that's always popping yeah. around. To, yeah. Which is nice.
3: And and what about Pierre Gasly? Because obviously he he got a, a pretty late unexpected call-up in some ways to, mm-hmm. to join the senior team. It hasn't been the easiest start to the season for him. Has he got what it takes? Can he cut it at the top level?
8: I think he's he's had an unfortunate start because um, in Barcelona he had two big accidents, one in the first week of testing and one in the second week. And the second one in particular really put us on our back foot because it actually pretty much cost uh, Max his last day of testing as well because we just didn't have enough parts to properly rebuild the car. So that kind of, it hurt our preparations for the season a little bit, but then I think psychologically for mm. him, of course it's it's quite a blow, because now he's, he's probably driving just a little bit stiff, because he knows that if he crashes again, it's going to be really unpopular um, in the race, actually on Sunday if you look at his pace, once he was in clear air, then it was very close to Max's, it's just he d- hasn't got his qualifying sorted yet. Mm. So and the car wasn't easy to drive in Bahrain, it was quite badly affected by the wind. Um, Melbourne the qualifying is obviously just a mess. So I think it's don't don't judge let mm. yet. Let it all settle down a bit and see I think he'll he'll get there.
3: Because it is quite hard for a driver to get into a new car and adapt to that car. I mean the same can be said for Daniel in the Renault to an extent. It's a very different beast to the Red Bull so it's a question of of a driver adapting and they they should be allowed a bit of time to bed in shouldn't they
8: yes what you do what you do get is some cars suiting a driver's style Mm. better than others Mm. Um, Sebastian for instance always his driving style required a very strong rear end on corner entry and if if the car had that then he was devastatingly quick if it didn't then he actually struggled. He didn't seem to be able to adapt his style that well to a car that didn't have that characteristic. Mm. He, I've never worked with, well, I have worked with Kimi, sorry, but quite some time ago, but you hear Kimi always wanting a strong front end, which is actually, when I think about it, that's correct. So some drivers do have a style that they've developed, which if the car can't deliver that, mm. they struggle with.
3: And is that how you separate the good from the great? Because everybody always still says that Fernando, I know he's obviously left the grid now, mm. but Fernando was the greatest last year because he was able to get so much out of an underperforming McLaren, and that's the sign of a truly great driver.
8: Yeah, I think that is, there is, that is true. I think you saw that with, with Fernando, you saw it with Ayrton. Um, Max is also able to do that. I think it's, it's, a, it's an extra string, this, if you can adapt your driving totally. And if you pick up whatever is required the dri- that the car requires you to do, then that is that is amazing. And you may see it with other sportsmen, the Valentino Rossi, when when um, Marquez came in with his unique style, then Rossi stood back, um, looked at it. So, yeah, this is a new style. I've got to adopt it, and he has.
3: Right, next up on the Formula One Best Bits of the In The Pink podcast, it's Claire Williams. Now, Claire is in a unique position because she's come through the ranks of her eponymous team, and she's done it all on merit, which I know some of you are yeah, 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 of course she has. But it's true. She's really earned her way to leading the team forward. It hasn't been easy. It isn't easy at the moment, but she has got a steely determination and passion for this sport. And that's almost palpable in this podcast. I love talking to her. Over to you, Claire. Your sense of responsibility and commitment to Williams certainly runs deeper than anyone else's in the paddock because you do have this this legacy and the, the, to, to uphold. And as you say, you've grown up with the team. Um, when does the legacy feel inspiring and when does it feel like a real weight on your shoulders?
9: Yeah it's funny Um, someone said to me the other day and I've never had it put to me um, like this that people could question my commitment to Williams because I've been in inverted commas born with a silver spoon in my mouth and therefore am I as hungry as say somebody that hasn't had that and the the comparison was to my dad you know my dad um, came from very um, humble beginnings, very difficult beginnings. They didn't have any money whatsoever. My grandmother was um, a single mom, raised him, um, knew that a good education was what would get him out and you know, give him a good platform moving um, into the big wide world. And you know, so that there was that comparison. And I was kind of like, I don't think it necessarily works like that. I think it can be, a that's quite stereotypical to say, well, just because I was born into privilege, I recognised the privilege. That I was born into Um, and that detracts in no way from how I feel about Williams and how committed I am Mm -hmm. to this team this team is my life you know I grew up as much as we weren't brought to races because you know dad didn't take us because no one else has to take their kids to, to the office and I respect that but we weren't we were around Williams all day long Mm. in the sense that when my dad came home from work at the dinner table when we would all have supper together that's what we talked about you know we went on family holidays not that dad was ever there but that was all we talked about so it is it's so entrenched in me Mm. I care about this so much because that's what we all cared about that's what we were all taught to care about as kids was Williams and You know, the team has always fought to survive in our sport for whatever reason, whether that be financially or competitively. So I'm very used to that and I'm very conscious of the need to always, I suppose it's just inherent to me, the need to always make sure Williams is successful. So I have an enormous commitment to this team. I can't see my life without it you know i don't know really who i am without williams someone you know i was having a conversation with my husband and said you know he asked me what what would you do if it all went under or you sold it or whatever and i said i have no idea and he uh, and he said well you could go off and you could be a non-exec director for some companies or you could do speaking engagements so it's like but that's not me you know i am formula one is just so my world Mm. that i can't imagine my life without it
3: in some ways, does that make it tricky to be objective and to say actually now might be the right time to sell or might be the right time to step down? Have
9: you ever considered that? Uh, you know, I, get, I got trashed for this last year but when in the Netflix show. Um, unfortunately, what I said was taken some, somewhat out of context. They didn't mm. put the, the, the context wrapped or they didn't wrap the context around. And, you know, I, I questioned my position within the team. Um, but only so much as I'm not arrogant enough to sit there and think they can't do this without me and I have to always be here Mm -hmm. of course when things are going badly anyone should question themselves themselves it's the right thing to do so of course I went through that process but I I I haven't been brought up to give up I'm not I don't Mm -hmm. give up I fight harder when people tell me that I I can't do things you know people are very judgy I've Mm -hmm. found that in the past 18 months Um, but they don't know what we're going through they don't know what I do necessarily they don't know how hard I fight and I work and I don't believe that my time to go is now I don't believe that selling Williams now is the right thing to go you know this is sport sports teams go through difficult times and it's it's what you do in these difficult times it's the true test of who you are whether that be as an individual or be as a team as a sports team Now is not the right time to to pack up and go, we're done, we don't like it, we're not doing very well. It's about fighting and it's about all working, us all pulling together and showing the world that we can do this and that we belong in Formula One and our place in Formula One is at the top of the grid, not at the back of the grid.
3: They would never find anyone that cared more, that's for sure, if you did leave. And equally, as you've touched on, I I doubt you'd find somewhere that you'd be as passionate about. And it's a a difficult place to move from here because you've got to live and breathe it. I mean, as you say, it is part of your DNA. Just explain to us how that that worked and how it became part of you over a number of years through your childhood. Just describe your childhood to us.
9: Um, I had a wonderful childhood. I was very lucky in that I was brought up in the world of Formula One. You know, um, I got to go to Williams on weekends when mum wanted a bit of a break from us kids. Dad used to have to pack us off with him on a Saturday and we got to run around Williams. And I never remember really seeing my dad on those days. You know, I was plonked on a secretary's lap or something and I used to help type letters and frank the mail. Franking the mail was a big Thing of mine, um, but also raiding the stationery cupboard, <laughs> filling my little backpack <laughs> with William's stationery. I still love our stationery cupboard. it Obviously, holds happy memories for me. Um, you know, I used to we used to zip line across the in the race base to have the, the the big things that come down to lift the car from place to place. And Jonathan and I used to grab those and zip across the ceiling. It was brilliant. And coming to races was just great as well. But you know, as much as that, we were kids, and we did lots of other stuff as well. And you know, I was very lucky, um, you know, in that sense, um, being a part of that kind of life and knowing that my dad was incredibly successful. But you know, obviously, I went to I went to boarding school, so in my late teens or mid teens, I suppose I wasn't around it a huge amount. I would always scour the. Wasn't allowed to watch it. I was always have to scour the Monday morning papers to see how Williams did when it was a race weekend. Um, But I never, you know, certainly we were never brought up by my parents to think that any of us would ever inherit Williams one day, that any of us would ever run it. Um, And when, you know, the time came to make our career choices, you know, going to university, I never um, had it in my head that I would wanted a career in motorsport. It just kind of happened. Um, It's kind of my whole career has happened quite organically. I've never had a clear ambition to one day run the team has just progressively happened over the course of you know the 17 years that I've worked for Williams.
3: Wow 17 years do you know something yeah. that struck me um, when I first met you was the fact that you called your dad Frank yeah. and for a while I was like that is Frank's daughter isn't it and I remember thinking what a cool thing it was a very simple thing a very simple technique but it, 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 it brought respect and it made other people I think realise that you know you weren't daddy's little girl yeah. it wasn't pure nepotism you don't your place is that was that a conscious decision it must have been obviously you can call him frank at home
9: <laughs> no because i call him i'm i spend so much time in the office with dad i i, I sometimes do make the mistake of calling him frank you know a private <laughs> time or at you know family gatherings whatever and everyone was like claire he's your dad please at least <laughs> to call him you know dad occasionally Um, It was a very conscious decision I made very early on in my career at Williams when I first started. It was like, I'm not going to call him dad in the office. It's, you know, I'm I'm here and I want to do a good job. And I don't want people, you know, thinking about the nepotism thing. And if you keep calling your dad dad in the office, they are going to think like that. Um, You know, but the nepotism thing was quite a big deal, I suppose, in the beginning. And, and, you know, it still is now to a degree in, in a number of ways. Um, but, Dad never wanted me to work at Williams. you know the first it was our head of marketing that offered me the job originally, and he hadn 't even asked Dad and it took him about three months to persuade Frank to to give me a job and then Frank really thrashed me for the first six months you know really wasn't you know he really put me through my paces, putting me on a really long probation period and stuff like that but Because I hadn't been around the paddock a lot when I first started coming to races. And I wasn't allowed to come to races for a couple of years into the job. Um, Sylvia Hoffer, who was our press officer at the time, who I effectively worked for Trackside, had to go around she introduced me to people as, you know, Claire. And people didn't know, a lot of people in paddock didn't know for a long time that I was Frank's daughter. And Frank never treated me as his daughter when I would have to be there holding a dictaphone for interviews that he did and stuff like that. And that was great for me.
3: Along with Bose, In The Pink is sponsored by Tag Heuer. Swiss avant-garde since 1860. Excellence, precision and elegance. Their timepieces are designed for those who love challenges, which is a great fit for this podcast because most of the guests share that sentiment. Next up, a man who isn't currently on the front line in Formula 1 but has been for many, many years and he has got a brilliant insight um, to this sport. Um, He's also... Very bright guy, but very personable, and has been there and done it at a very young age when you consider uh, all he's achieved. I'm talking about Rob Smedley, and uh, he gave us a very interesting take on what it's like to be an engineer in Formula One. Here he is, Rob. How important is your relationship with your driver? Because um, I heard you say once you almost became too close to Felipe, and when he had his accident in 2009, it, it, it it was very tough for you and you said well actually I don't want to get that close to a driver again but how important is it to have that synergy and that, that strong dynamic in order to deliver performance
10: I think, it, I, think it's, I think it's important to have a really strong relationship with all of your um, well with all team members first of all you know it doesn't have to be sat in you don't want to be sat in an ivory tower um, but definitely the drivers play a key role and I think that I've always had with, with, with all of the drivers that, that I've ever worked with um, I've always had a, a good relationship, you know, whether that's from a, you know, running a department point of view, or or a, or a race engineer, or a data engineer before that, a performance engineer. Um, I think I've always had a, a strong relationship with, with the drivers, um, because they are, at in, in, uh, sometimes the probably the most fragile mm. link. They can be the strongest link in in in, in the chain. Um, they can be the most fragile link in the chain at, at times, and you've got to understand that that actually, you know, as much as we as engineers, you know, we get a little bit of of the limelight and uh, and let's say you know the responsibility for the car performance. It's them who go out on a Sunday afternoon, on a Saturday and Sunday afternoon. It's very easy that you know it, it, you, you'll very rarely you know look on. I haven't got social media, but you'll very rarely look on social media or the the, the media in general and you'll see, um, you know, individual engineers getting slated, but you will very, very often see individual drivers getting slated, and they're human beings, you know, as, 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 you know, from the strongest, from the mentally strongest of them, you know, like Fernando Alonso, to the less strong of them, they all have their foibles, and they all need an arm around them, and sometimes, you know, it's just about doing that, or it's, it's also about, you know, trying to understand their technical language as well, that's the other reason why you've got to... You know, have a good relationship with the drivers because they don't speak the language of engineers. Yeah. Um, they have you know that some of them, most of them, are you know quite technically strong, but you've got to you, you've they, they speak a different language and you've got to understand that language.
3: Well, it's more about feel for them than it's yeah. about actual knowledge of the technicality. Yeah, they
10: do, they, they, they feel you know, all of them. Um, they drive the car through their ass, you know. They, they, they feel it through their fingertips and they feel it through 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 the seat of their overalls. Um, and you've then got to have some kind of, you know, it's like the Tower of Babel sometimes, where they're saying, you know, I, I often listen, especially with younger, you know, race engineers or whatever is that they're saying something, and you know, the race engineer will be having a completely different conversation with them, and you and you kind of have to get in there as a translator and say, well, actually, what he's actually saying is this, you know. And, and kind of put that that translation together. Um, others are very good at technically explaining stuff, um, but as I say, they do speak a different different language. But but they do it from feeling. You know, they they don't understand things um, at the depth of what engineers do, and nor should they. You know, because neither you could put an engineer in a car and, and get him to drive it at the speeds that, that the drivers do. So you have got to have that that marriage between the two.
3: It's interesting what you say about the vulnerability of drivers, both in terms of social media criticism they are exposed but also physically on the track and as, as you saw from Felipe's accident you know he, he's the one that, that took the hit you know literally and risked his life to that extent and I think that must be hard in a way for you because you're, you're something of a puppeteer you're pulling the strings but once they're out in the cockpit they're kind of alone to that extent aren't they?
10: Yeah, they are, and that's why I think they rely so much on their race engineers. You know, they they become their lifeline, if you like, that, that you have got um, some link back to planet Earth um, while they're driving these machines. Uh, but and 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 I think that's why you've gotta you've gotta have that strong bond between between the race engineer and the driver. It can't just be a professional thing where, you know, it's all kind of robotic and, and very professional and very clean. You've got to be able to to, to have somewhat of a personal relationship because because when they're driving the cars at these very high speeds and they get themselves into a panic um, or otherwise they just you know they just want some link back to back to planet Earth, um, back to the pit wall, then then they need somebody. They and need somebody human that they can rely on.
3: And that link brings me on nicely to your radio messages, which have oh, become funny, ringtones for, through the years. For. I mean that is, I think it's probably because Well, I don't know, listen, I'm not singling anyone out, but at the moment, when you hear an engineer over the radio and they've just won a race, you kind of want them to go, Yes! Come on, you bastard! (laughs) And sometimes they go, very well-driven, congratulations. And you go, come on, where's the emotion, where's the energy? And we definitely saw a bit of emotion, a bit of personality in your radio messages, um, which kind of makes you stand out. Obviously, um, the most infamous one, uh, being in 2010... Do you have any regrets about that? Fernando is faster—the new moment in your career.
10: Um, yeah, of course I do. You know, um, what
3: would you have done differently? What could you have done differently?
10: I think I probably, you know, if I look back on it, um, I think I think as, as as a team, as a team, when what was that it was like a pinball oh machine? My or something.
3: God, <laughs> honestly, this was this was the quietest area in the whole restaurant when we arrived at 9 o'clock this morning, and now it's the loudest, so apologies for this... What I would say was ambient noise. It's not. It's just dominating. Anyway, uh, back to 2010.
10: Um, yeah, I think I think as a team, when, when we all look back, we probably could have done things differently. Um, that's that's clear. But, you know, regardless of that, I think that what, what could I have done differently? I think you grow up, you know, and, and when I look back now, I can't even remember what was it 2010 it was 10 years ago wasn't it so I was like mid mid 30s something like that um definitely old enough to, to to kind of know better but whether or not you always behave like that in the moment is is another question uh I think that you know you kind of get yourself in a situation and feel aggrieved at, at things um and I definitely felt aggrieved that day that the, the Kind of well, we've done the hard work and we're winning the race, you know. And and and, you know, Fernando, if he is quicker, then he he can pass us. Um, so, you know, in that moment, you kind of get wrapped up in 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 those thoughts. I think, you know, if I look back now, um, it was probably I, I've never had a problem of team orders. By the way, I think team orders are are part and parcel of the sport. They always have been, um, and they always will be. Um, you got to deploy deployment at the right time. You can't just deploy them willy nilly, um, but they've got to be done at the right time, um, and they kind of got to be done inclusively as well. You know, you, if you do them on a on an exclusive point of view, where you know there's there, there's an inner circle know about the team orders, but then nobody else does. Um, I think that can create friction. So I think if you kind of you're all sitting down and you're being honest with e- with each other, you know, pre-season and pre-event, and you're saying, look, if this is the situation in this race, then there, we will deploy team orders, I think most rational people wouldn't have a problem with that. Mm. Um, Whose
3: decision was that then in 2010? Was it, was it yours or did, was it a group decision?
10: What, to, to deploy team orders? Mm. I mean, it, it, it's kind of, I, I guess it, it, it's a group decision in the end, but but in the end, you know, Stefano would, would, would have made the, the ultimate decision that, that he wanted to, to deploy team orders.
3: Um, so you have regret that you didn't stand up for that, against that decision? What is your regret?
10: No, the regret is that probably um, the, the, you know, I, I made it quite obvious that we were deploying team orders. Um, oh, you should
3: have been more subtle.
10: I should have been more subtle.
3: <laughs> okay, so we're going to role play now. How can you be more subtle? I am Felipe, you are talking to me through team radio. Go.
10: Um, God, I don't know, to be Come honest. Come
3: on, you've played this out in your head. You must have done. No, I haven't. You I haven't. must have thought I could have done that more discreetly.
10: Well, for example, after, after he got past, I said to him something like, Oh, good lad, you yeah, know, good on you, mate. good on you, mate, for letting him pass, or something like that. Now just stick with him, or something like that. And I shouldn't have said that. Uh, you know, there's just, it's, it's, it's fairly subtle, to be honest, the, the, the changes that you would have made. But I should have, um, we, we all could have done better that day. Right. <laughs>
3: well swerved (laughs) no but do you say that you shouldn't have said that to him afterwards because it was rubbing salt in the wound that you 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 were just pissing him off by saying that or you would you were accentuating highlighting the fact that you had deployed team orders the latter Uh uh-huh right okay and your regret was therefore that you got a big chunky 100 grand fine
11: uh
10: the regret was that the regret was that that you know, in the end, I wished you know if, if if I have if I have if I could go back in time, i would I want it to play out? I'd want it to play out that we all kind of sat down pre-race and we said, right, this is what we're going to do. Um, and Rob, you're going to have to do this at some point in the race, and Felipe, you're going to have to pull over if this is the situation. Uh, have a
3: code that no one else can decipher.
10: Yeah, and and it just and it just kind of takes the sting out of it, the emotion out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, But then, you know, the way that it then played out, you know, Felipe wasn't playing ball, was he? I think I told him seven times or something (laughs) like that. Uh, Bless him. And, you know, in the end, you know, poor poor Stefano was was absolutely pulling his hair out because what should have been just an easy, you know, me telling him once and and him pulling over um, didn't happen. Yeah, but Uh, I mean,
3: you can sit there before the race and agree something in principle, but in the heat of the race and drivers being drivers... They're not necessarily going to be compliant.
10: No, I think that I think that if you have conversations, I think if you have adult conversations pre-race, pre-season, you know, we always try and do it pre-season now as well, and, and set out rules of engagement. Um, I think if you do that, then then it, it it takes the emotion out of it so much more. Okay. Um, I think if you're and, and people are allowed to voice their opinion as well. If we say right, you know, driver A is our number one driver, regardless of what it says in contracts, driver A is our number one driver. And driver B is you are our number two driver. Um, and, you know, it, it's not so much about number one or number two, but, but we will back driver A in the situation where there's a 50 50. You know, I think Ferrari have, have done, you know, for all Ferrari gets slated, I think, you know, what Mattia did at, at the start of the season by saying, right, well, we're going to back um, Sebastian when there's a 50 50 situation. I think that's absolutely fair enough. Um,
3: and Charles will take that given that he he's new to the role and he's learning and this, you know, you'd rather be driving for Ferrari than at
10: the back of the grid. Of course you would. Yeah. Of course you would. And, and, and Charles will, will definitely take that. Um, but I think I think you're dead right in kind of setting that out, and, and, and what you do is you take all the emotion out of it. It's not just something that appears on a Sunday afternoon and people go, Well, where did that come from? You know, there was a narrative leading up to that.
3: Okay, another bit from the biggest smile in the Formula One paddock, Daniel Ricardo this time from the second podcast he did with us on in the pink okay listen to make this a good news day because we want it to be we want you to go off to your holidays back with your family in australia with the spring in your step let's just reflect on monaco for a couple of minutes to round off the podcast just how special was that because not only did you win the one that you've always wanted to win but you did it under really difficult circumstances
4: yeah, I like this. We're ending on a good one. On a good one. Um yeah, so Monaco was I mean, it was the greatest moment achievement um of my career to date for sure. Um more more enhanced by probably the reception I got when I got back from the the podium and all that back to the team, the energy station, you know, as, as they call it at, at Red Bull. Um, I'd never seen just a sea of people so, I really believe like so happy and excited for someone, you know? And it was like, I really felt at that moment that how I go about it meant a lot to a lot of people. And that, mm. that just made me proud, I guess. Um, so that was certainly the proudest moment in my career.
3: It was literally like you'd won the world championship, wasn't yeah. it? In that moment.
4: It was, it was, yeah. Like I, there's no other way of putting it. It was huge. Like I'd... I felt like I'd done more than I'd actually done was, you know, than just winning a race. There was certainly something else behind it. And, um, yeah, it was, it was huge. And, uh, I think as well, part of it was, you know, two years ago, my name won't be on the winner's board, but Mm. you know, 99% of people believe that, you know, that, that was my race and rightly so. Um, so I think they'd carried a bit of that heartbreak with them Mm. for the last, you know, 24 months. Mm. And, um, To do that and kind of get the monkey off the back um, and with a race where we had problems, I think it was just a massive relief for everyone. And, you know, I I think their fear as well was that if my car did break down in that race, I probably would have walked away and just never come back. So (laughs) just a massive relief for everyone. I mean, let's say losing Monaco twice would have been... Yeah, the death of many of us.
3: (laughs) Too much to bear. Okay, next up on In The Pink Best Bits is Alejandro Agag. He is a visionary, the man behind Formula E. He's had loads of experience in Formula One and he gave me his take on all things racing. Here he is, the Spanish maestro. So here we are in your rather plush offices here in Hammersmith, uh, July 2019. And when we look back, and consider where Formula E has come. I, I guess it's actually quite symbolic when you walk around these ever-expanding offices. It just shows how well Formula E is doing. Has the success of the series surprised you? Has it come sooner than you expected? What are your feelings?
11: Yeah, well, the offices were definitely not this plush when we started. We were They were probably the size of the kitchen that we have here now. Um, I guess that's a good sign, but it has definitely surprised us, yes. And we are far, far, far beyond our best expectations um when we started we really didn't know what to expect um and obviously many many people there was a big consensus that this wouldn't work and that formula was gonna be you know how to have a short life um and you know we were of course worried about that when when everybody tells you oh no no this is the wrong idea and so on and so on we were like oops maybe they're right but you know luckily we decided to give it a try and we thought we were right and um Yeah, we were maybe lucky or also the times really changed in our favor. The whole kind of environment around us changed in our favor. And we probably were in the right place at the right time. So, yeah, it's a question where luck played a big role, obviously, and timing, which is obviously very important. And then we got kind of this momentum and then the thing started growing and growing and growing. And now, yeah, and now we still keep growing a lot. I mean, uh, we have uh, the last race of season five in one week. In New York, and I mean, the number of meetings of companies and potential teams. I mean, we cannot have more teams because we're full now. But a uh, number of people want to get involved in one way or the other. is It's huge. I mean, it's 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 difficult to find space to, for all these for all these meetings. So, yeah, I guess it's a, it's a good sign. We, you know, touch wood.
3: So, when you say we, are we talking you and Jean todd How did it start? Was it your brainchild or his? I hear a little story about. A Parisian dinner.
11: Yeah, yeah. It was probably both. I mean, he, he came out... Oh, but it's never both.
3: It's one person's... Like some, someone took the idea to somebody else.
11: So, he um, asked me to have dinner with this other guy. Okay. Who um, was a former... I used to be in politics many, many years ago. So, when I was in politics, I was sitting next to this... In parliament, we were sitting next to each other. I was sitting next to this Italian uh, politician. Uh, his name is Antonio Tajani. And this guy was at the time when Jean Todd got elected president of the FIA. He was the commissioner for industry of the European commission and within industry, within his portfolio, he had the the motor industry, the car industry. So Jean said, you know, Antonio said, yeah, I know him very well. Oh, it'd be interesting to meet with him just to have a chat. And I said, well, I'll set up a dinner in Paris. So I spoke to Antonio and he said, yeah, cool. I'd love to meet Jean Todd. Um, let's have dinner. So the three of us had dinner in this small restaurant in Paris, in Estresa, and uh, we started just talking in general about where the industry was going and what was Antonio's opinion and so on. And Antonio kept saying electric, 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 and all these new rules are going to be, you know, implemented about lowering CO two emissions, and the industry is really going to have to go electric. is really important. And Jean said the FIA should have an electric car championship, and then I said, yeah. And I would want to do it. I, I, I'd like to be the promoter of that. So if we have to give the credit to someone who have the idea, it would be Jean, because he's the first one who said we should have an car championship. Um, then a few months went by, and and uh, FIA did a tender, and I came up with a project. And I think the the key for us to get the... to And then we were a group. I had an investor with me and so on. But the key for us to get the license from the FIA was that we proposed a real a racing product that could be feasible and i think no one else really of the other bidders were was coming from the racing world and they didn't really know they were saying we would like to to create an electrical championship but they didn't know how to do it we knew how to do it Mm -hmm. we thought we knew how to do it then it was very difficult to do it but we at least we knew where to get chassis from where to get batteries from where to how to organize the races and so we could get also a lot of talent from, you know, because we were coming from the world of motor racing. Mm. And, you know, I was in GP2 and doing a lot of stuff with Formula One in the sponsorship and television and so on. We knew. So so FIA at the end gave us the gave us the contract.
3: And why were you personally so excited by this? Was it because you were anticipating the revolution in electric cars? You you, you wanted to be part of this huge process, which, were, you know... None of us could have anticipated how big, I guess. But did you, you did you have the foresight at that stage?
11: Um, what I did see was that we were in trouble in Formula One. So my world of my business was in Formula One, around Formula One. I didn't own a Formula One team, but I was doing a lot of business with sponsors around Formula One. Uh, I did business with um, television rights in Formula One. And I did also business with... I had my own team in GP2 that was bringing drivers to Formula One. So my main source of income was around Formula One. And I started to see that if Formula One didn't become green, it would, it would be in trouble in the future because the world is going in one direction and you're going in a different direction and that never works. You have to be in the same direction where things are going. And even better if you, if you get yourself ahead of where things are going. And I saw about 10 years ago that the whole world was gonna become a lot more concerned about the environment because the problem is becoming bigger and bigger and people are actually being more and more aware So I thought we should create a green Formula One. That is, or at least we should make Formula One green, or if we cannot, and sadly it's really difficult to change things quickly in Formula One, we have to create a new one. And that's where the big opportunity for the business is going to be. I mean, I would love to say I did this because I am a uh, to-the-core environmentalist, but I am an environmentalist, but I didn't do it for that. I did it because I thought it was the best way to position a business for the future. And, uh, yeah, it kind of happened. So,
3: yeah. And and was it ever considered a possibility where it could be a support series for Formula One? I mean, why don't we do this on the same weekend or at least a week before, like some sort of...
5: Hmm.
11: You know, when this was born, Bernie was at Formula One. And um, probably that was the luck for me because Bernie didn't, you know, didn't really think that this was a... um, strong enough uh, option um i remember he called it milk float uh, competition at the time without any i i bernie I, I have greatest admiration and we are friends for 20 years but you know he just didn't believe in this so we could create something separate and i think it makes sense to keep it separate for for a while and make it grow and and uh, because we would not be able to grow if we were a support of Formula One. Formula One would always be kind of like controlling us and Having said that, I think in the future, there could be space for cooperation, but more on... A, I'm not going to say on an equal level, but you know, more on a way that we will, I don't know, make a kind of plan of or our, our architecture for the whole future of the sport. Mm-hmm. Because I think Formula One is going to go electric, eventually. Has to go electric. Mm-hmm. Um, the only question is when, and we have this license with the FIA. I mean, it would be much better if we kind of build the whole architecture together. Having said that, again, uh, we have different shareholders, different owners, and they have different agendas. So,
3: yeah, the same parent company there, don't you?
11: Yeah, we have, but uh, the the same person actually, not even a parent company, but the same person on top is Joe Malone. is a shareholder of all my shareholders, um, and also the shareholder of the Formula One shareholder. But but uh, that doesn't mean he um directs the companies below they are independent they're listed independently they are actually supposed to act completely independently and for the best interest of their shareholders which has, which are many many thousands of shareholders because they're public companies so they act independently and um yeah and for the moment the the guideline or the direction that we have is to just be independent yeah. not to compete or not compete because i don't think formula is a competition to formula 1 but uh, to be to go on our separate ways.
3: Okay, next up is a bright staff, the future of female racing. She's the W Series champion and we're pinning our hopes on her to be consistent female presence in the paddock going forward. I'm talking, of course, about Jamie Chadwick. Here she is, her best bits from In The Pink podcast. So just reflect on us, reflect for us, if you will, on when you got asked to be part of the Williams setup and the huge honour that must have been
12: yeah, so it's all kind of happened quite quickly. I mean, I've known Claire sort of on and off for a long time. Um, I've sort of always updated her with what I've been up to, but there'd never really been an opportunity for me at Williams. But she had always sort of kept an eye on what I was doing. And yeah, when I first um, decided to do the W Series, I don't think um, she was fully on board with the idea of it. So she came out to Hockenheim uh, with her husband, Mark. Mark and I had had conversations prior to the weekend. And um, yeah, after the first race, it was kind of agreed that we'd look at doing something, and yeah, a development role, academy driver uh, style um, role would be available to me if I wanted to do it. And of course, for me, that was just dream come true. So yeah, it all came about quite quickly after that, and yeah, ever since it's been amazing to actually make that first step with the team. Uh, doing a lot of simulator work at the moment but also to come to the race weekends like this it's really really cool It's
3: such an honour when you consider the history of Williams Claire is such a great champion of other women isn't she like she's, she's all about the sisterhood
12: Yeah exactly and honestly I don't think I appreciated it nearly enough until I've actually joined the team um, honestly as a role model go she's fantastic and really what she's doing with the team now um, I think is the most impressive thing because it's not easy for her she's not being gifted anything on a plate she's got to do the hard work and from for me to see that and her to even mentor me as well uh it's so cool and alongside that i think the first race i did was silverstone it was frank's 50th anniversary and really when you see the history of that team to be a part of it is just such an honor
3: now listen, I've got my back to our departure gate, so can you keep an eye on things? It's delayed at the moment, yeah. isn't
12: it? I don't think we're going anywhere anytime soon, sadly. Oh, we're just we're snuggling, snuggling red wine. Very
3: nice. Um, now let's talk about you and and your career and the trajectory that you're currently on. is is really exciting, and you know I've followed your career and you've been guests on Sky Sports many times over the years, and we've always, you know, had our eye on you. That this this fresh new talent female talent it's very exciting for everyone but now it really feels like it's coming to a point where you're being able to show the world just what you've got and where you deserve to be is that how it feels to you?
12: Yeah it does I think the last six months especially I, I don't know for whatever reason right time right place um, it just feels like it's accelerated 10 times and yeah it's those kind of, sort of trajectories like you're saying you can go along your whole career so just making little steps and sometimes you know what you want to achieve but it almost seems unrealistic because you're not making the steps you want to make Mm -hmm. and really I would say yeah in the last six months that step has just been uh starting to happen and suddenly you've got one hand on uh looking at something that was a dream uh could potentially be a reality and yeah I'm so happy with the way um things have panned out like I said a lot of being in the right place at the right time, but, yeah, it's great for me, and it's great for women in motorsport as well. Um, I think the opportunities are just getting that much greater, and, yeah, I feel like I'm in a good place right now with that.
3: Did you ever doubt that the W Series would give you that platform? Or, or from the off, did you know such a great calibre of people involved in it that you knew that this, this was something special?
12: Yeah, it's funny you should say that, because, honestly, when um, it was first launched, I was a bit sceptical. Then, I think, we went to the first test, and still a little bit sceptical I was unsure as to how it would be received and what they were going to do with it and it wasn't long after that I think the test after that um, was the first assessment process sorry in Melk in Austria and then I was like no this is going to be really cool and this is going to be what I want to be involved with and the standard of drivers and the standard of the people that were you know organising it everyone behind the scenes I think it obviously took uh, a lot longer for it to be in the public eye and a lot of sceptics before that But when it was actually launched, I think people realized that this is something that is going to be a game changer in motorsport. And I think the way they've done it's been really impressive. So, yeah, I've honestly got no doubts now. Um, It's probably the best decision I made in my career to get involved with it. And, yeah, it's fantastic for, for me, but also for the other 19 female racing drivers that are on the grid. Do you feel
3: you've improved as a driver? And if so, how?
12: I do actually um, I get asked this question a lot and a lot of people ask me how tough it is and the reason I say that is because I think very typical racing driver there's always an excuse or there's always like an escape route um, in pretty much everything I've raced in with the W series that's not there at all because we're all sharing engineers we switch cars each weekend we share data so there's no real kind of oh well he or she's in a better car than me or they've got a better team. They've done xyz that's all eradicated so for me to gain an advantage and be my best on that day I almost have to better myself that much more and it's quite a mentally intense environment you're all together a lot of the time and so from that side of things and dealing with the pressure I feel like I've had to yeah definitely better myself.
3: And is your main competitor Alice Powell is she kind of your, your, your toughest competition?
12: Yeah, so Alice has come on strong. She um, had a couple of really unfortunate weekends, uh, a couple of DNFs, more or less not her own fault. But, um, yeah, my moment going into the last race is between myself and a Dutch girl called Beitske Um uh, Beitske, another girl, had some good opportunities when she was younger, but unfortunately just didn't have the opportunity to continue racing in single-seaters, um, so BMW contracted now, but... Yeah, it's come back into it and it's come back in very strong, so she's keeping me honest. But yeah, we've only got one race to go, so fingers crossed.
3: And that's the brand's hatch, isn't it? It is, yeah, home race, which is nice. That's going to be awesome. And presumably, you'll have a lot of media attention, and there should be, you know, quite a good atmosphere around there.
12: Yeah, honestly, I cannot wait. Um, I think I also cannot wait, but I also just want to go and do the race because that's the main main bit that I want to focus on. But yeah, I think the W Series. They put on a great show and they've invited a lot of people down. Uh, I've got a lot of family and friends coming down as well. So, yeah, hopefully I haven't drinks it and fingers crossed we can do what we need to do.
3: Next up is my friend and fellow Formula One reporter and presenter, Lee McKenzie. Lee had a fascinating childhood growing up in Formula One and loved talking to her as always. Here she is with her best bits your dad really was your big influence in motorsport, wasn't he? But So so was it a sort of a foregone conclusion that that you would work in Formula One as well?
13: Um, I don't know if it was a foregone conclusion about Formula One, but I was, so my father was a Fleet Street journalist, and I was the annoying child that turned up at everything. So not to go to school, to brownies, to Sunday school. Uh, I had done Wimbledon's by the age of 12. I'd done Rugby World Cup when I was 11. I missed about two months of school to go to that. i he only started doing Formula one because somebody took ill, and he went to do the Mexico Grand Prix in nineteen ninety one I think it was. And um, he just went to do that one. And I think he finished off doing them about four years ago. Um, he went to Ayrton Senna's funeral. He wrote uh, a book about Damon, a book about Nigel Mansell. Uh, so he was very much in it. The only way when someone, a parent is traveling like that to see them is to actually go to events. And you're good. You bring your kids with you to different events mm. as well. And, and that was um, a different world of Formula One when I was a kid going to events. So um, I would... You know, there weren't motorhomes as such. It was like one truck with an awning out the front and massive big barrels of free cigarettes everywhere. So I would just go filling my pocket with cigarettes You're and joking. things at the age of about like 13 and stuff, like West and all these different things. And, and and you saw, you know, you could walk around, you could sit and go to dinners with David Coulthard. What an exciting person, how I'd love to meet him. And now essentially he's my boss and I can't get rid of him. Um, Michael Schumacher, all these different people. I was the annoying child, as I say, that turned up everywhere. Uh, you know, I would wash the dishes at Stuart at Ford. Um, and just because I was hanging around all the time. He only took me to quite dull places like Manicure and Silverstone, where you couldn't really get into any trouble. And then when I left school, went to university, I, whilst I was at university, I, I was working for Fon. Bernie gave me a job. Um, my interview was can you count from 10 to 0 backwards in three languages and I was given the job of PA <laughs> when, no. when when um, when FOM was doing World uh, Feed and it had different channels it had like the Pits and Highlights channel um, so that was basically my job interview and essentially I couldn't really do the job at, at all and when I think back I must have been a nightmare um, but you know I was there in 98 um, when DC caused a massive pile up in spa and things like that. So, um, God, I yeah, so awesome. I, I went into it that way. And then, cut a long story short, I've probably worked in just about every genre of motorsport, from champ car to DTM to F3000, uh, IndyCar. car. Um, you know, I, I was a co-driver in three rounds of the World Rally Championship, which I loved doing. And it, so it becomes... It's not just a job, it becomes your lifestyle. And people like Nico Halkenberg and Sergio Perez, Valtteri Bottas, these guys all used to live, we all lived within two streets in Oxford. So we all knew each other. We would travel to the races together. I was doing PR for some drivers as well. Um, So, you know, I have known them way before they got to Formula One. Um, So, you know, I first knew Nico Halkenberg when he was 17 in A1 GP. Uh, so you get, to, you get these I relationships A1, with drivers. Nice, yeah, course. so I did A1 as well. With Georgie
3: Thompson. Yeah, Lovely so Georgie. I did
13: host and Georgie Thompson presented it for Sky. That's so right. um, that's still probably the best job I will ever have, which is probably why it doesn't exist anymore. Because <laughs> I think there was probably about as much partying as there was driving. Um, Josper Staffan drove for Team Netherlands. And that is when you feel ancient. Wow. When you've actually interviewed when the dad is driving, albeit he was pretty old and at yeah. the end of his career uh, and now you're interviewing his son that never fits well
3: Wow. <laughs> okay so looking forward to 2020 we are in 2020 bloody hell can't believe it um it's coming around pretty quickly testing will be here before we know it Weeks away. Who, I know yeah who um, most excites you obviously Max is now locked in yeah. Red Bull till 2023 Charles Leclerc has done the same with with Ferrari which is which is great really kind of sets up the stall a bit doesn't it um, what do you think we can be most excited about this year, other than seeing each other at the paddock?
13: This year is a funny one because it is the last year before the big reg changes. Mm. So how much will actually change this year? Because surely everybody has got their 2021 heads on. Mm. It is it a kind of lost year? I'm not trying to put anybody off, but I don't see why the norm would change in 2020. Because I think that everybody is geared up for this massive set of rule changes, which is coming in in 2021. Where I think that you know Red Bull will be absolutely on it, um, and I'm really excited though to see how the Max and Charles battle goes because mm. they are the future of the sport. You know, will this be Sebastian's last year? It sounds uh, from if you believe what you read in the newspapers, and and also from Ferrari, it sounds like it could be. Um, so there is going to be a bit of a changing of the guard um but you know Seb and Charles have got to get through another season at Ferrari (laughs) to get to that last race possibly in Abu Dhabi because that is going to be fireworks
3: um I don't know about you but I saw a real shift in Charles in in Austria when Max did the overtake you kind of felt like he was like okay I can get my elbows out now as well you know I don't have to playing this Mr. Nice Guy so much more. And you and you saw him really step up. And I really feel for 2020 that we're going to build on that rivalry, which I think the fans will love.
13: Yeah, and that that is the future. Mm. You know, that's what excites me most, that, um, you know, Formula One is quite a brutal sport in a way that you get like you know you stand there at the end of a season and you're getting all emotional and you're interviewing Felipe Massa and Fernando Alonso what was your biggest highlight and you've brought so much to the sport and you know you sort of have these conversations like the sport's not going to be able to continue with them without being disrespectful you know how many times were they really mentioned last year? Mm probably not that many because it moves on you know if i left tomorrow i'll never be mentioned ever again if anyone Stop mentions it. again no but it's true though I'll i mean the sport you. goes so quickly <laughs>
3: the, the sport goes so quickly do you think we'll still be there with like, zimmer frames down the pit lane absolutely going, okay. but they'll be
13: electric move
3: on.
13: <laughs> God, they are. and they won't make a noise so i'll definitely get run over in the pit lane um yeah Girls, i just give it up move on exactly. make
3: way for the younger models
13: i think it's What excites me is some new races on the calendar as well. Mm. You know, there's going to be Vietnam, uh, Zanvoort, which I know they're doing a lot of rebuilding at. Zanvoort a track that I've been to uh, many times and it is fantastic and Tarzan Corner and things. I hope they don't all uh, change too much of it. But to be honest, to to get Formula One there, you're going to have to do uh, some considerable work to it. But, you know, I do think for anyone, I'm sadly not going to that race because I'm presenting rugby that weekend. But I do think for anyone going to that race, you probably don't want to book a flight back until about the Tuesday because no, the traffic and that. fans yeah. will be so intense. I mean, I've missed flights back from, you know, the, the, Euro, the F3 Masters from there and things. And that's like an F3 weekend and it's fantastic. But, you know, you're not getting a flight back for a day.
3: The only place that we can end this collection of best bits is with Daniel Ricciardo and his singing. Take it away,
7: boy. Okay.
3: Again, I
4: apologize for viewers or listeners. Listeners.
3: Well, no, some can view. There's a podcast. There's a GoPro. That's what I meant to say.
4: Right. So you
3: just come in when you're ready. Okay.
4: We'll see how my musical timing is probably terrible. One, two, one, two, three. Headin' down south to the land of the pine
14: Thumbing my way into North Carolina staring up the road and pray to God I see headlights oh, gonna up up <laughs> I made it down the coast and all oh, the voices throw me off <laughs> <laughs> And I'm a hoping for rally I can see my baby tonight So
3: rock me, mama, like a wagon wheel. Rock me, mama, any way
14: you feel. Hey, mama, rock me. Rock me, mama, like the wind and the rain. Rock me, mama, like a southbound train. Hey,
4: mama, rock me. I want to apologize to anyone listening
3: beautiful just keep it going come on all right feel it baby feel it
4: i'm gonna take the headphones off again i got this <laughs> <laughs> running from the cold up in new england
14: i was born to be a fiddler in an old time string band My better plays the guitar i pick a banjo now oh the north country winners keep on getting me down last my money playing focus so i hacked it up late but i ain't i turn them back to living that whole life no more. So rock
3: me, mama, like a wagon wheel. Rock me, mama, any way you feel. Hey, hey
14: mama, rock me. Yeah.
3: Rock me, mama, like the wind down the rain. Do? Rock me, mama, like a southbound okay. train. Okay.
14: Hey,
3: mama, rock me.
4: Alrighty. Old Chrome Medicine Show. Shout out. <laughs> <laughs> they can probably stop now, right?
3: No, no, no. I want the next one. Really? Just so you see, Roanoke.
4: Oh, it's good. Walking to the south out of Roanoke. I caught
14: a trucker out of Philly. Had a nice long talk. He's a head of from the calling Gap. A Johnson Sir here. Tennessee, I nah, gotta get a Walking move on. South, <laughs> <laughs>
3: oh, out of Philly,
14: beautiful of Daniel Ricciardo ladies and gentlemen uh, Johnson City, he's still going Tennessee and I gotta <laughs> get a move on before the sun I hear my baby calling my name and I know that she's the only one if I die I rally least I will die free <laughs> beautiful beautiful
3: okay that's it for best bits of the formula one in the pink podcast thank you so much for your company don't forget you can win those bose 700 noise cancelling headphones just tell us which guests you've loved the most and why rate review subscribe and you can win premier league tickets courtesy of tag Hoyer. do the same but put hashtag pl at the end loads more great guests on the way very soon but thank you for your company and we'll speak again very soon